You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up to the minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. Mic check. One, two. Hang on a second. Here we go. Welcome back, everybody. And thank you for taking time out of your day to hop on this podcast and listen to a dumbass talk, basically, is what this podcast is about. But this episode... I feel like a dumbass because today's guest is so good at what he does. We're going to be talking with habitat specialist, John Teeter of Whitetail Landscapes. Now, he also has a podcast here on the network, and it's all about habitat management and improvement and things like that. Now, I brought him on, and this so don't get worried because this isn't about habitat like modifications and how to do a whole bunch of stuff. There's a little bit of that in here, but we use that reference to make a point. And so what what we're trying to accomplish in this episode today is a conversation about how deer use terrain to regulate their body temp temperature, right? So when it's really hot outside, they're seeking cool a cool environment. When it's really cold outside, they're seeking a warm environment. And so we're using specifics here to like specific uh, terrain features, vegetation types, water, soil, canopy cover. And he talks about all of these things in hopes that we can find ambush points or what to look for, even if you're a public public land guy or you don't have the ability to modify uh, your your, uh, hunting property. So, so, you know, what to look for as far as those terrain features, um, edge, uh, food sources, um, open timber versus 
you know, uh, where the sun can get through the trees. And we talk about, we kind of talk a little bit about preseason. We talk, or early season. We talk about midseason. We talk about cold temps. And uh, it's just a really good conversation. And it gives us another thing to think about when we go and do our scouting. Because as we all know, the, the environment changes as the year, you know, the year comes and goes, spring comes, when, uh, summer comes, everything gets real thick vegetation's real green everything starts to die off vegetation leaves the stems and now we're wide open again and so the deer are looking for the most comfortable place so it's not necessarily the same place every single day every single year all right so uh we talk about uh identifiers and what to look for when you know looking for good deer bedding in different times of year how deer use those terrain terrain features and where to set up so very interesting episode and uh you know like just another thing to think about and i think when you walk through the woods on a scouting mission whether it's you've already done it and you can just reflect back on what you've seen or you go out again after listening to this podcast and start to look for places that may be early season specific or rut specific or uh, late season specific and just kind of get an idea of maybe new new tree stand locations or new places to hang your saddle or put a ground blind or whatever. So um, very, very interesting episode. Uh, I, I'm excited for that. Now, when, while you guys are probably listening to this, I will be on the road and I'm going to be traveling to uh, Vortex's headquarters in Wisconsin, headquarters in Wisconsin. And uh, I'm going to go on like a content mission there. I'm taking a tour of their facility. I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to be meeting some guys that I've only kind of had conversations with over the phone, um, had a whole bunch of different uh, uh, communications with but never shook their hands and met them in person. So I'm going to go do that. I'm going to be getting a whole bunch of cool content from those guys, a whole bunch of, you know, recording a whole bunch of podcasts. So for the next couple of days, if you're listening to this, follow along on social because I'll be doing some stories and, uh, you know, getting to meet the people behind the product of Vortex. They're our title sponsor here on the, uh, on the Nine Finger Chronicles. I love what they do. And I think they like what I do because I think that's why they work with me. So it's, uh, it's going to be interesting the next couple of days. I'll say that. But before we get into today's commercial, ExodusOutdoorGear.com. If you guys are looking for a very reliable trail camera, go check out their website, exodusoutdoorgear.com. They have three different options. They have a cell cam called the Render. They have a Lift, which is, um, it's not a cell cam, but it's their higher end uh, trail camera. And then they have a more affordable option in the Trek. And uh, all of them work good. I I just absolutely love um, the, the feeling that I walk away after I make, you know, user error. Sometimes you just can't, you know, sometimes you can't uh, avoid user error. That's just me being a dumbass. But when I do everything that I'm supposed to do, I'm confident that my trail cameras are taking pictures. And so I, I know that they're taking pictures. I know I can use the data, man. I've had them out for every, you know, short periods of time, taking a lot of pictures really quick. And I've also had them out for over an entire 12 month period, over 12 months. So it was like 13 months, I believe it was before I checked that. And it was a, a less of a picture count, but 
it gave me an idea of what kind of was coming through an area all year round. So that was uh, that was pretty interesting. And so go check out ExodusOutdoorGear.com, um, Excalibur crossbows. I'm I'm really excited for this because um, I'm going to be pur- purchasing or getting I don't know what I'm doing yet, but I'm going to be purchasing an Excalibur for my family. Uh, and I really think Excalibur not only do they have a variety of uh, a variety of crossbows that can fit anybody the cool thing about that is they have they have styles for you know my wife's a small person uh, she's not a midget but she's small and we have my kids and they're tiny right now but I want a crossbow that can accommodate them and potentially me and so I think uh, Excalibur is going to be a great starting point for them and it's going to give them the opportunity to get outside and shoot something when right now they just don't have the power to draw back uh, a bow so with that said uh, excalibercrossbow.com if you're in the market whether for yourself or for any kids I need you to go to their website and check out everything that they offer, man. So uh, ExcaliburCrossbow.com. And they have a new, uh, one of their crazy, uh, more recent uh, crossbows is the Excalibur uh, Twin Strike. It holds two arrows or two bolts. And so that's a gnarly design. Go check that out. And then lastly, let's see, Hunt Stand. Uh, man, I love this. I, I just, it's one of those continuous uh, continuous improvement. So a long time ago, back before I was doing this, I was a process engineer and I was also a, I worked for a continuous improvement team in a, in a fireplace manufacturer. So we would go and we would look for problems in the process and we would try to fix it and make it more efficient. And the cool thing about hunt stand is it allows you to be more efficient as a hunter by documenting everything that you see out in the woods. You mark your trail cameras, your tree stands, obviously, but then you also mark trail, trail intersections. You can mark uh, scrapes and rubs, and then you get uh, even deer sightings and it allows you to upload, um, upload uh, your trail camera pictures for that kind of management as well. And what it does is it allows you a journal and a map that shows you where deer move, where the most sign is, and it's it almost gives you the ability if you if you're smart about it to forecast deer movement based off of the data that you've gathered, right? And I know that's a lot to comprehend right now, but if you do it right, hunt stand can be a an excellent tool for whether you you are looking to shoot your first deer or whether you're looking to shoot the biggest deer of your life. That documentation and that data will help you. I guarantee it. I, I do it every single year and it just gets me closer and closer and it, uh, it helps me avoid areas where deer don't move. And uh, sometimes knowing where they don't move is just as beneficial as knowing where they do, do move. So uh, go check out huntstand.com. It's like 30 bucks a year and I do have a discount code for that one. Let me check. I think it's SN20 for 20% off. Yeah. SN20 for 20% off of your hunt stand. Uh, your hunt stand uh membership and 20 percent off 30 bucks is lower than 30 bucks so that's very affordable as well so enough of that let's get into today's podcast about how deer use terrain to thermal regulate with uh, special guest john teeter 
three, two, one. All right, joining me today on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast is our local habitat specialist from the Whitetail Landscapes podcast, John Teeter. How are we doing, man? Hey, Dan. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, I don't know. What's it like out in New York right now? Snowy. It's snowing. Yeah, snow on the ground. Okay. Yep. Are you north? Are you uh, northern New York, or where are you at? So I'm in central New York. So if if you were kind of draw, I guess a line, I guess you know, in upstate, um, basically across the center of the the state, I'm I'm basically right dead center. So north of me is northern tier. It's even colder. They get a little bit more lake effect snow. Where I'm, I'm I'm kind of right in the central area, which is a good hub zone. I can travel all over the place. Our airport. You know, we've got hub zones all over the place so it's it's good for me from from the business side gotcha okay all right yeah man we've had nothing but it's like gloomy days here and i'm ready for a sunshine day here in iowa just so i can go outside and and do something it's already april i think we've only had like one 50 degree day so far this year i'm kind of i'm kind of looking forward to summer to be honest with you yeah, I'm in the same place. I mean, we've, I've had a, I've had enough of this. I had to cancel a, a client this week just because we've got another rainstorm coming, and it's just it's brutal walking and talking in the rain. It's it's no fun. So I, yeah. I just I'm, I had to move them. I, I think the one thing here, like yesterday, I'll give you a funny thing. Yesterday, my wife kicked me out of the house, and she said, you know, "Go do something." <laughs> okay, okay, this wasn't permanent, right? This wasn't like oh, yeah, no, she's yeah, fed up with my temper. Just a few hour, you know, space. So she said, "Go do something." And my daughter and my son were away, so I I went over and I uh, I went to my land, and I had about thirty trees to plant. So I'm tree tubing, I'm digging in the ground, and it starts snowing. It's a blizzard, and I'm in the middle, and I'm thinking to myself do I really like doing this? Like I, I caught my sanity at that point. And I'm like, well, I mean, this is what I'm supposed to love. I mean, this is what I do professionally. So I should like this. And I was just like, no, I, I don't like any of this. This sucks. You yeah. know, that's kind of where I was at yesterday. And I can't believe we're getting snowstorms, you know, now. Yeah. So, oh, I gotcha. Ugh. All right. So <laughs> when we started talking about what we were going to talk about on this podcast, uh, this episode today, you said, oh God, I, I already forgot it. Deer <laughs> or uh, deer thermoregulating bot. What was it? What was the term? So we want to talk about energy exchange and thermoregulation. Okay. Now, I know this seems like far out there. Science. This is like my major secret to killing big bucks. This is how I do it. And you can have every app you want, Spartan Forge, you know, whatever app you have. I mean, this is my secret. I break down terrain features and deer interest levels because of their focus on thermoregulating. And we can get into that, but it's kind of yeah. understanding like, you know, vegetation and habitat and why they want to use certain areas. And this is like right into my design process and a little unique to probably anything you've ever heard of, but you know, that's just the way we have to, to think about things because, you know, deer expend energy and we want them to be lazy in the landscape. And that's yeah. uh, on highly pressured ground. Those are the things you have to focus in on. Right. Okay. So thermal regulating, when a deer's hot, he wants to find a, a spot that's cool. And when he's cool, he wants to find a spot that's keeps him warm. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's that simple. Okay. It's that simple. It's that simple, but, um, every year guys go out and they start looking for deer, right. For scouting, they're looking for sign. They're looking for, um, places where deer live in hopes of, I don't know, putting together a game plan to kill them right tree stand location ground blind locations sure. whatever so 
let's talk a little bit about just from, you know, you've built this idea, right? This process in your head about this, you know, using how deer use terrain to thermoregulate themselves. Are there any, let's, let's just start where, where are some of these places? Because there's a wide variety of landscapes from very flat, no terrain ground that deer live to almost mountainous type terrain where whitetails live. So let's talk a little bit about where some of these places are, and maybe you can talk in specifics or you can talk in general about um, places that deer thermal regulate. Yeah. So I think the, the one thing is to understand like the terrain differences on your landscape. And, you know, one of the most obvious when I think of terrain, I think of like rugged mountain settings and rugged mountain settings are really not inducive or conducive to like, you know, quality soils, uh, quality climates. And when I say quality, you know, they're, they're, they're tend to be cooler. And of course, you know, those are big impactful elements across the landscape. So I, I get to travel all over the place and design hunting properties, right? That's that's my professional career, and that's what I focus on. And a lot of times when I'm looking at properties, I can kind of like exclude, okay, this portion of the property isn't going to be used as much, but this portion of the property is going to be used a lot more. Subtle terrain changes and less rocky uh, type scenarios where you have kind of good soils, um, those tend to be more the favorable conditions for growing, you know, better vegetation. And those are kind of like habitat features that create more attraction levels. And really, you know, when you're starting to look at like terrestrial habitat types and, you know, we're talking, you know, not aquatic stuff, um, but wetlands fall into that terrestrial habitat types, we're going to start breaking the forest and grasslands or wetlands up into kind of like value. You know, what value do they provide to the deer? Uh, if you go to like a wetland area, and I don't even know why I'm talking about wetlands because, I, I, you know, they don't tend to be the best areas for hunting, but you're going to find like little pockets and islands of cover and you're going to have either cattails or reed canary grass. You're going to have something that's going to help the deer, you know, have a form of protection. Usually they're cooler areas. The water has a tendency to kind of, kind of microize that climate and kind of make it a little bit less, there's less changes in that environment. So the deer are able to thermoregulate a lot better in, in wetland conditions, assuming they're able to stay dry. That's, that's the trick there. On the rest of the conditions or the rest of the, the vegetation types that we were just talking about in the forestland settings, a lot of the time, you know, depends on the open space. So if it's open and it's a south facing, so it's got, you know, various aspect and the aspect is south, it's going to tend to have a tendency to be a little bit warmer. And they're going to trend to those areas, particularly in like blustery wintery conditions. Um, it also depends on how the wind, you know, pushes itself through that lens landscape. They may hide behind terrain features to give them you know, the ability to thermoregulate. So terrain plays a lot into, you know, deer's placement on the landscape and trying to find those locations where deer want to be uh, is really obviously important to our hunting, but they also have to be assessed. And then the timing of that is critical. You know, if a deer is on the landscape and it's using a particular uh, habitat feature and that habitat feature benefits them from, you know, either a food or cover or thermoregulation standpoint, they're likely to use that more frequently. And that's how you can figure out the timing behind things. So I think that might answer some of your question. Okay. So to dumb it down <laughs> a little no. bit, right? Let's, let, let's start because w there are a variety of environments and ecosystems in the United States. Is it, is it something as simple of finding the coolest spot during a hot day 
versus finding the warmest spot during a cold day? I think generally it starts there. And then from there, I typically, and again, we're focused on deer demands. I focus on how the wind moves through that terrain. So the combination of those two tend to be kind of my secret of how I kind of diagnose how a deer is going to use an area. And this is really specific to the hunting big bucks. And then, you know, you can even make it simpler. So if you own property and you're designing it, you know, you can co-locate those features in a, in a, in a, uh, a bedding setting where they can get up, they can loaf, they can eat and they can reorientate themselves. Remember one thing to focus on with your trail cameras, when you're looking at deer, a lot of times you'll, you'll recognize that the, the deer will lay down for 15 or 20 minutes and they'll get up and move. They're constantly reorienting themselves. You know, there's been, you know, there's been different discussions out there that, you know, deer eat five times, you know, in a 24 hour period, a uh, deer eat a lot more than that. And, and some deer have to eat more frequently. And sometimes, you know, deer's appetites are suppressed because of weather conditions. Those all factor into how deer move on the landscape. So if you have an area that has, you know, basically coniferous trees, so they can keep cooler as your example, and they have open spaces in a bedding area, that's variability. And that variability will drive interest. Let's add a food component in there. Oh, okay, that they're gonna stick around those areas a lot more. So when I'm designing hunting properties, again, particularly in a highly pressured ground, I always have a food component and food can be in a lot of different forms. It could be a food plot within a bedding area. It could be managing the vegetation in a herbaceous form, maybe some woody browse. You know, those are the variations that you have, you can have in a bedding area. And if I know where that is, it's a heck of a lot easier to go in and kill that deer. But again, considering how wind moves through those areas is really critical in how they orient and position themselves. Those are, those are you know, pertinent to, to, I think, larger deer, big bucks, that, that type of thing. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk about these specific places, right? And okay. let's talk about these, these places where let's break it down into early season. And then when a lot of people... Uh, deeper into the fall, let's say late October, November timeframe, maybe even into December where things start to cool down, right? Um, a lot of states have September hunts and even in Iowa, man, I've, I've hunted in October in some 70 plus degree days. So what, let's talk early season. Let's talk about when it's hot outside, what kind of terrain features, what kind of I don't know. You can talk Midwest in general. You can talk New York specifically. You can, t but you know, uh, I think uh, the principles of the conversation will really translate to at really anywhere. But wh right. where, like, where are deer hanging out specifically in a early season warm weather time frame? The, the most obvious, I think, uh, for me would be kind of aquatic features. So again, I, I said earlier, um, water tends to stabilize pretty, pretty well. Um, you know, the cooling warming cycle, it, it's, it's impactful, but you know, the water temperatures more constant than not. Now that may vary. And in some cases where you have like natural springs, you know, and on my, my own property, I have, that, I have a bunch of natural springs, the water temperature is pretty consistent. It's 55 degrees. It comes out, you know, all year long, it'll freeze along the edge, but it's, it, it's very consistent. So those microclimates, tend to be more stabilized. That's where deer have a tendency to be. Now, get a little bit deeper. One of the things to think about is soil. And we always think about soil for food, but the soil has a tendency to uh, 
sometimes micro regulate the ground. And remember, as a deer lays down, you know, there's kind of convection between the deer's body and, uh, you know, the related ground temperature. So in, in sandy soils, they heat up really, really fast, right? And, you know, they're usually really dry. And that would probably be, in, you know, an example of, you know, a, a terrain feature that, that you probably wouldn't focus on if it's really, really warm. Uh, again, south-facing slopes is an obvious uh, other example. Uh, but usually wetter ground can be actually a, a better thing. Uh, it's usually a little bit cooler. Uh, it cools their bodies. And then let's throw like some trees in the mix. So coniferous trees, like I talked about earlier. So in my settings, we have a lot of hemlock. So I'm like anti-kill the hemlock, uh, although in some cases we do harvest them across the landscape. When there's like dense vegetation and it's not very transparent, you know, the sun can't get through, it can't radiate the ground. And that vegetation is meaningful. It doesn't have to be coniferous tree. It can be deciduous trees. But a lot of times, um, if you've got a water source adjacent to, you know, some canopy or some coverage, you know, the deer are going to park themselves in an area like that. And it could be really kind of like conducive to just, you know, uh, hunting. But a lot of times in, in some of those areas are kind of lower, cooler. You know, they could be in draws. They could be in gullies. There, There's a lot of wind swirling in those areas. And then the wind's going to be variable and you're going to have thermals, you know, exchanging quite a bit when you have a water source like that. It's really kind of hard to figure out exactly what the wind's going to be like in those areas. So typically I'll hunt at the end of a draw in those examples. And if I'm gun hunting, I'll be able to shoot up that draw if I'm crossbow or bow hunting. Hopefully the deer are kind of, you know, purging themselves down that draw towards me. So that that's kind of a strategy from a design standpoint and looking at the environment. Yeah. Okay. So from a where they're betting, where they're at standpoint, um, hot air rises, cold air sinks. Mm-hmm. Are we talking, and you mentioned at the end of a draw. So when it's hot outside, we're thinking that they're going to be lower in elevation. Likely lower, likely lower in elevation. Again, it tend, it has a tendency to be variable. And again, this is the, it, it also relates to the health of the animal. So, uh, an animal that, um, and, and of course, time of year, and if you know the the body, uh, the fat content uh, drives an animal to make decisions to move. Um, the the wind content uh, or the the wind volume uh, will displace them in different locations. Um, that's a cool, usually wind relates to cooling factors, but generally speaking, their position and elevation could be variable based on the amount of cover. So let me just give you an example. I worked on a property a few years ago where we went and we terraced a hillside. So you had an east facing hillside and I went in with a dozer and I dozed all these benches. And then I went and I closed off the benches because deer have a tendency to travel benches, but they travel them irregularly. I don't know if you've experienced that when you're hunting. They'll come up and down, but if you isolate a bench, they'll use that area. The minute I added vegetation in that area, it pulled them from a bottom location to a middle location. It made them a little bit more visible visible for hunting, and uh, it tied into a hunting location setup that we had in this individual's property. So you can change your location based on the volume of cover, and that volume of cover will, will allow those deer to thermoregulate uh, a little bit better. That gotcha. makes sense. Okay. So is that then, okay, so you said east-facing slope there. Um, is that a place where they're betting in the morning to catch the thermals? Because then what I assume is, or they're betting somewhere else and then they come in midday 
in bed there because now the sun is behind that area and that area is starting to cool off. Yeah. And yes, I mean, they'll, they'll typically bed higher on an east facing slope in the morning. You know, they will catch, they will catch thermals in there. Obviously, you know, that that's in concert with the wind conditions. So the combination of those, you know, that the wind's going to have a tendency to swirl. I mean, in concert with that, if you're creating a bedding area and you've got like a north face or a north south facing ridge and you've got spurs off either side and you just encapsulate this bedding area and you're kind of using you know, the, the thermal wind conditions to allow the deer to focus on one side versus the other, you know, that's the ideal setup. I mean, if, if you have that on your property or you're considering purchasing a property that has a lot of east facing access uh, from the standpoint of deer, you know, where they have these little ridges come off. If you also have west facing uh, where they have, you know, those fingers and knobs that come off it, it can be really, really productive. So I would say that deer have a tendency to be higher and in the afternoons lower. And, you know, that's just a general statement, you know, but, but but sometimes you'll see variances to that. You know, it's not one size fits all. It's kind of a rule of thumb, but I would say that you'll see some variation. In it. And again, it depends on the cover type. If they have these travel corridors that have a lot of covers surrounding them, they'll tend to use those a little bit more. You know, they're susceptible to light conditions in the evening that, that dictates how frequently they move. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into, you know, their decision to make a decision to move across the landscape and you know thermal wind combinations in concert with just the vegetation is really it's it's i guess it's a bit complicated but it's, it's really kind of the factors that you know uh, you know com compile up to give give you kind of more data to know if you can go after that deer or not yeah i got a good story for you dan i, I want to talk about my buck that i killed this year because i think it's a little crazy okay so all right so uh i have a small 50 acre property okay and I had this big buck uh, that was on my property this year. And the reason I, I want to talk about this was because this deer was not on my property three years ago. And he was utilizing a, a neighbor's bedding area. Now, the neighbor couldn't really access it without really disturbing it, which was a huge blessing to myself. And I knew he was using an area this year. And he had, he had used it a little bit last year a few times. And this year what had happened was... I had assumed he'd use this ridge again, and this is an offshoot. It's another ridge that's adjacent to my, to my property, and he was betting on this. I felt really isolated point. It was east facing. You know, he he had the visual advantage looking downhill. Very hard to access this deer. So I went and I replicated kind of that environment. I had the same terrain and topography features. I had the same soil type as that adjacent area, so it drains really really well. It's kind of gravelly, loamy soil. And it does really well when you get a lot of moisture on it. So deer like to stay high and dry a lot of times. So I usually kind of use that as my rule of thumb when I'm looking at layouts and areas. And this buck, uh, we had a rainstorm in September and I had a lot of overhead canopy. I cut an area in October just to kill this deer. And come, you know, I think the 15th of, the, you know, I think it was September, he came out of this bedding area. He had not been on the property as of yet. He just came transitioned from his summer to fall range in September, and he came out of that bedding area. And I had specifically cut a bedding area. I put a lot of overhead cover in there. I created a false canopy, which basically is like reducing the canopy ceiling to, to a low area where you hinge cut a lot of trees and create a lot of cover. And I have great soil that drains really, really easily. And, um, you know, that was the really i killed that dealer deer based on the soil and composition of, of that structure in that area he came out of that bedding area um several times and he gave me enough data to to make a decision to kill him and 
you know, that, that was, you know, where you can actually manipulate the vegetation, you can leverage what you have in the landscape. And if you don't, you know, I guess, uh, bump in there too much and create too much pressure, they may use it more naturally. And, and multitude times he came in through on rainstorms. And when I cut that area, the winds would swirl in there a little bit more. And when he came into the area that I killed him, he came in, the room was completely wrong. It was uh, a southeast wind. He came directly in the south. So you would think I would be in big, big trouble. Well, the timing he came into that location, which was, again, delayed movement is a good thing from a thermal standpoint. So if you're set up in an area and you've got, in my area, my box blind, I was in a box blind, it's pouring rain. I'm hunting this deer right off the bat in a pouring rainstorm. He's coming out of bedding area that's very dry. And basically he swoops up into the food plot and my thermals are just dropping. They're dropping right behind because I had, a, it, again, in the evening, you're going to have quick, a uh, quick change in temperature. And that quick change in temperature is going to be to your benefit. So the wind was technically hit, traveling in his direction and then slowly dropping down. So I was, you know, minutes of angle from getting nailed by that particular deer. But again, it kind of goes to show you that you can manipulate an area and create um, basically a lot of utilization in there. If you consider the soil conditions or the cover type and, you know, how they may use that and when they're going to use that. So right. hopefully that's a long story, but you know, an example of success, right. putting the pieces together. Right. So from a, from a habitat standpoint, what you've d- did is you created a in, um, environment that this deer wanted to seek out, right? Absolutely. Uh, dry and dry when it's wet. Um, something from a wind standpoint that would, uh, allow him to feel comfortable. And, you know, there was a bedding area in there somewhere that he felt comfortable and a food source that, uh, he felt comfortable coming out and your thermals did what you wanted them to do. And they got sucked down to the lowest point and he, you know, he came out and you shot him now. Yeah. A lot of people who listen to this podcast don't have the ability to alter the environment or uh or own their own property or may just hunt public so how can we translate that story into a success story without doing all of that work and maybe just making up for it by scouting yeah okay so uh and and i want to be you know clear with everybody i've hunted public land um, I've been in this exact same situation, so I can completely uh, relate to everybody who experiences this. The biggest thing you can focus in on is food availability. So if you're looking at a landscape and f- forget if it's mountainous terrain or flat ground or wetlands, start to go in and identify the food and think about the food seasonally. So in the northern latitudes, you know, the deer transition to woody browse a lot sooner than people recognize uh, in the big wood settings, uh, they absolutely transition to those areas. Those clear cuts or cutovers, as people call them, the edges of those tend to be the most utilized from a bedding standpoint. The interiors can be sources of food. And if they have these large, large, like uh, clear cuts, you know, 10, 50, 100 acres, you've got to get in those areas and figure out how deer are accessing them and, and when. And big bucks have a tendency to kind of isolate themselves on points. They like the visual advantage of things. They like to use wind to their advantage. They don't always move with the wind. I haven't found a lot of consistency in that, but they have a purpose to what they're doing. So when you take your trail cameras and put them in the field and start to evaluate how they're using the landscape, you know, I focus on hubs, so high points during rut areas. Those tend to be more social areas. You'll find a lot of scraping, rubbing in those locations. They may be adjacent or near 
cutovers or clear cuts. Um, saddles tend to be used quite often. I see variable movement on, on in saddles, but I see more movement in saddles when deer are breeding. Um, so it's a time of year type thing. Uh, draws, uh, bottomland areas, you know, those are early season warm examples. You can, again, attack deer in those settings. But again, you got to be careful because the wind in those settings are really kind of hard to hunt. The one thing I will say, and I think this has been really one of the secrets to my success hunting is as the season goes on, I get nervous. You know, you start out low pressure and that pressure usually increases, particularly on public land. And as gun season comes, you know, hell breaks loose and, and everything's all over the place. But I think walking into a, a setting like that and recognizing the earlier and more frequent and the more on top of I am, I am on these, these seasonal food sources and having awareness of this, the less I'm dealing with, you know, additional pressures. And by the way, the deer in the breeding cycle are more variable in their movements. They become more uh, less consecutive or pat patternable in their, their daily movements. So you're hunting big woods, you're usually hunting cycles of movement or cycles of pattern. Um, and that's what I see a lot. And, and that's what I've experienced. Whereas you're, if you're in, you know, block timber country, you know, farmland, you know, their, their movements will be a, a little less erratic, um, more consistent. But again, that pressure factor definitely sways into the frequency of movement and how consistent they're moving across the landscape. So I always say early and often, pick locations that are high and dry, find the best food sources, and start to tell yourself a story how deer are using the landscape. Gotcha. That is that is my secret. That's how I, I, I kill big bucks. Playing, playing devil's advocate here, how yep. do you find a high and dry spot in a low and cool environment? I mean, there could be there could be one or two foot elevation changes that could be could be everything, and you know wetland areas. I've worked on clients' properties where we've had to displace soil to create those, but you'll find them. And the plants that are in those areas, so like you'll see black spruce in areas that are kind of wet, large, you know, um, white uh, white spruce. Those plants will be indicators of high and dry areas. If I'm um, I'm in an area where there's there's white pine it's likely on a dry area. So the species that are there will be an indicator uh, of dry ground. And that, that, that will be helpful. So I would, you can look at the trees and say, okay, you know, the other thing I like to do is if you got a, you got a hillside and I, I was kind of focused on East facing slopes because they tend to, you know, favor the West winds and um, you know, on those East facing sides, you'll find where, you know, years ago, trees will tip over. There'll be a divot and a cradle so a low spot and a high spot, and that'll create an elevation change. And that elevation change, assuming it's flat, can be, you know, really kind of a great place for a deer to bed up. And I don't think it's, in some cases, it may be looked frowned upon, but there's no reason you can't go in and if there's down trees or, um, you know, debris, um, you know, maybe you clear off a little area that, you know, with your boot and flatten off for the deer to, uh, to locate on. And, uh, you know, they... You know, there, there's rules of thumb that I have when I'm designing bedding areas, and it's finding those really kind of high-dry locations uh, adjacent to areas that are lower that give them that visual advantage. That's that's really huge. Yeah. Okay. So as we start to move on into the the hunting season, it starts to get cooler. Um, you know, now we're talking about a uh, the opposite of what we were just talking about, right? It's mm -hmm. trying to stay cool in a hot environment. Now we're now we're trying to stay warm in a cold environment as the seasons change deer change with them and i know you 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 mentioned about 
you know, food sources and things like that. But from a betting betting standpoint, how how does that change when they're trying to stay warm as opposed to trying to stay cool? So let's just we're going to humanize this for a second because it's the easiest way for me to explain it. So think of deer behavior kind of like humans. Most of us don't like to be in unpleasant environmental conditions. Go back to my example earlier where I was planting trees in the snowstorm. So, you know, I don't want to be too hot or too cold. And I think most individuals, particularly me, get a little ornery when that happens. So when you're starting to think about the deer on the landscape, these different environmental conditions, temperature change, precipitation, the example you know that I was talking about earlier with my deer, um, the ability for deer to thermoregulate is going to be impacted. And so they're going to pick positions on the landscape that are going to benefit them. Now, in concert with that, when I talked earlier about food, if they are in good health and good standing, their volume of movement may be more predictable. You know, back to the five times feeding a day example, they may have more regularity in their feeding patterns. So if you have an adjacent food source, those tend to be utilized uh, as frequently as as they need to. Now, I want us just throw out one really basic concept is having food and bedding is, is really critical. And a lot of people will criticize me for this and say, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, you should have food adjacent to bedding or food some distance away. Is my example earlier where deer are getting up and moving all the time, they're constantly regulating themselves from a, a comfort. Go back to me being in those bad conditions. I want to have a heavy jacket on. I want to get myself out of the wind. I want to protect myself. And then add into the security piece of it where I don't want to get shot or killed. And that all plays into the overall movement you know, equation here that we're, we're kind of getting into. But case in point, when you're dealing with in the winter months or the colder periods, your wind and snow have a detrimental effect on deer and they increase their energy demands. So uh, contrary to what I just said, deer that are, um, again, uh, either suppressed in movement because of the weather conditions or suppressed because of hunting pressure, they're going to move more frequently at night um, in some cases. They're going to move when the time is right and they feel comforted to do that. So we got really smart on our landscapes than overpressure deer because we wanted them moving daylight in a daylight activity. And again, you know, understanding their needs and their energy, you know, energy demands is, is really critical. It's costly when deer move. You know, they we want them to be really, really lazy in the landscape. And not every deer has a personality to be lazy. And cer- certainly during breeding season, they move way too much and they become susceptible, obviously, to, to hunt hunters. And in this case, you know, when you're designing a hunter hunting property, you want to give them as many options as possible. And given given that, I mean. You know, they could, if you're providing, you know, a la carte, the full buffet, I mean, and they have these options, they're going to be more selective on your property. And and again, you know, don't, not having that across the landscape basically puts you out of the game from a hunting standpoint. And that's really what I'm trying to fix in most properties. Gotcha. So in a roundabout way, I think I answered your question, but, you know, temperature, precipitation, those are like really important things that you've got to consider. And, and when you're building and designing, you know, if there's a lot of Northwest winds, um, you're going to, in your bedding areas, maybe you emplace more coniferous trees to knock down that wind, or maybe you have layering or you cut, you know, you cut timber to create more structure to kind of give them the ability to have kind of these more regulated 
um, you know, environments where, where they're not so susceptible to environmental conditions, if that, that makes sense. What, what about this? I don't, I, maybe you know this, and maybe this might actually be for a, a deer biologist to answer. But okay. from your experience, do you think deer are bedding closer to food sources in the, when it's hot or when it's cool? Uh, I mean, I guess, all right. So like in the South, so these would be Southern, you know, Southern areas, uh, they're going to be using nearest to resources that have the most water content. So if these plants have the highest volume of water content, um, they're likely to co-locate, you know, as close as they can to those plants. There's, there's another concept that I employ that is, uh, it'll be a little foreign to anybody who does, um, it focuses on this stuff, but it's called agroforestry. So I want a lot of cooling. So let's say I'm designing a food plot and I have a wide open setting. A lot of times I'm in placing trees in rows in those food plots because the plants evapotranspirate and uh, they're susceptible to radiant energy and water basically dispels into the air. So the plants lose water content as the days go on. Um, What you wanna do is to have some of these settings with enough light to produce plants so they can photosynthesize, but you're not creating an environment where, you know, the, the plants are deprived of, of water content. And that water content, if it stays in the plant, it's consumed by the deer. So I think water content in plants drives a lot of uh, their reason to co-locate in an area, and they're very smart about it. You also notice big bucks forage a lot on leaves, and um, they spend more time not in food plots. Um, they spend more time in the woods, and especially in clear cuts because their diets are a little different than, than those and their protein and other micronutrient focused um, uh, consumptive plant uh, interests are a little bit different. So, you know, diets drive location as well. And you have to think about that. And, you know, these are, these are really important things to think about when you're designing a, a hunting property. So, yeah, Dan, I would say water content is probably the the killer. And by the way, water holes, and I was, I'm not a fan of them, to be honest with you, from a maintenance standpoint, but water holes can be killer in those fall months because you notice a lot of the plants are kind of successing, they're dead. So they don't have a lot of forbs on the landscape. And they, you know, they're running around panning, chasing does. You know, they'll spend time at water holes. And water, water holes have become really valuable. Um, you know, if you, if you're not experiencing a drought, um, you know, uh, or if you're experiencing a drought, they could be valuable then, but they can certainly be valuable during hunting season, assuming you don't have a lot of succulents and, or food on the landscape that has a lot of water content. Gotcha. All right. So then, um, same question, different time of year for a, for a guy who doesn't own property, hunts public, yep. can't, can't manipulate his, the, the habitat. What is he looking for specifically in the cooler months to where deer are spending more time? Well, so it's a combination. So if you're looking at a property layout, a lot of times what you'll see is you'll see these, you know, dense stemmy. And I'll quickly define this for everybody because I think people get confused. There's areas that are hard to get into. If they're not accessible and they're very, very like stemmy, they're not likely to use those areas. You have to have the right space in those um, cutovers or clear cut areas. So what I would focus on is the dense cover that's very accessible. Those dense cover areas typically have a lot of food sources and they're usually in the form of shrubs or young trees, saplings, seedlings, what have you. 
and they become a good general food source for deer to create a lot of a trick um, very attractive. So you'll find them usually co-locating in those locations a lot more. So that would be my focus kind of in those winter months. And also, you know, when deer like to loaf or reproduce, they have a tendency to focus on cover. Sometimes it's isolated cover on the field, but a lot of times they'll, they'll co-locate in areas, you know, in and around dense cover sources to isolate themselves. So you'll kind of see that. And then it just happens to be adjacent to a lot of woody browse. And again, that's a food source for deer. Gotcha. Okay. So <laughs> now, now we, we kind of, we've talked a little bit about bedding and, and places like that. Now I also want to kind of talk about, this is something that you talked a lot about in the, uh, the first time that we ever talked on my podcast. And that was like a, over a year ago or, or more. Yep. Um, and the, like how vegetation determines thermals like how thick of vegetation or if wind comes through and hits a high stem count or how thermals rise and fall in places where there's more stem count or there's you know thicker vegetation talk to us a little bit about how deer find the or how how deer use those locations to their benefit so let's go back to the example of coniferous trees because it's, it's pretty obvious coniferous trees are going to have a tendency to be uh, more stabilized. Their temperatures are going to be, you know, basically cooler in the summer, warmer in the winter. But generally speaking, they don't have a lot of a large gradient in temperature change. They have a tendency to hold a little more moisture in those areas, and so the combination of 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 um, the sun not penetrating those areas um, is is going to lend themselves to be kind of more of a gradient interest level for deer. Um, usually on the edges of those, you'll get a lot of variability. So let's say there's a, um, a hemlock pocket and it's pretty dense. It's in that 30 to 40 year age range. And there's, you know, it's a pretty dense pocket. And then you've got this clear cut opening next to it. And there's this ecotone. It's basically two habitat types meet and the vegetation provides a lot of food and cover um, there'll be a lot of variability in movement in those areas. So the sun will radiate that open area. It'll heat it up. And when it heats it up, a lot of times, depending on, again, one of the things to think about is, you know, what's the barometric situation? Um, is hot air rising based on, you know, the pressure gradient that's in that lo localized area? But a lot of times you'll get some swirling right on the edge. And again, that becomes a great travel source for deer. They have a tendency to be able to kind of uh, see what they smell uh, in those areas um, because you've got that low moisture content and adjacent to that you've got this rising cooling air and you'll get this cyclical effect that basically kind of flows in uh, you know in a in a, in a uh, clockwise or counterclockwise fashion uh, depending on what area is heating and cooling and you know the thermals when they push through an area and it, obviously there's an elevation component to this as well you throw elevation and vegetation you got to pay attention to that. And I, I think it's hard to explain it, but you know, the easiest way to look at it is you throw out like um, a milkweed, you know, a lot of people use milkweed or, or something that kind of gives you an indicator, some wind indication tool and you throw it out there and you watch it travel. It's going to vary all day. There's nothing consistent about it. Thermals will be far more consistent because the rising and, and falling of the sun is, is the same. The um, abiotic features, the terrain features don't change. What does change is the cover. So if you go in and manipulate an area and clear it off, you got to recognize that there's going to be a uh, different movement of, of air in those areas. And 
depending on the, the volume and speed of the wind, it could have a tendency to toilet bowl in those areas. And you just got to have awareness and pay attention. When I'm clear cutting an area, it's usually an area I'm not hunting. Um, I'm doing it for the benefit of the deer and I'm doing it because the, the, the wind's going to move erratically in those locations. And it also depends on the, the, the speed and height of the wind. Um, you know, usually wind is a lot faster as you kind of go up in elevation and it slows as, as you go down lower. And then throw in concert there like layering of shrubs. And when wind hits shrubs, it tends to see to slow down. It meets a friction point and it slows down. Well, then it eddies and it turns and it churns. And, you know, the thing there is that it's really kind of hard to predict that in a landscape. And I don't want to make it sound impossible. And you don't want to be like a boy in a bubble going into hunting and et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, my example, I'm hunting out of box blinds more because I have a lot of undulation and change on my landscape. Because, again, it's 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 one of those things that are hard to deal with. Um, you know, you've got to go, go in and assess it and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'll take, you know, maybe the, the September period or maybe the winter period when we don't have a lot of snow on the ground and just go in there and just see how it moves. Like factor in the wind conditions, um, leeward sides and thermal changes throughout the day. And it's going to change all day long. It's, it's, it's very hard to explain, but, you know, I think that you've got to pay attention to those things and just see visually how it moves across the landscape. I can tell you when I cut an area, I have a pretty good idea how the wind's going to move, but I'm not 100% certain. And our, you know, climatic conditions, the way the jet stream flows, you know, and the environmental conditions at that particular time, that's all going to change how wind kind of moves through the landscape. And you've got to kind of think about that. It's going to be variable. Like you can't just say dimensionally, okay, we've got a west wind and it's going to, you know, travel over this, this eastern knob. So I want to get really high in the mornings because my thermals are going to come up. Well, you know, that westerly wind could shift a little bit. You could have an opening and it could create a little bit more swirling in the area. And it's not just this, you know, thermal rise and wind over the top and you're high enough so you're clear. It's just, you got to pay attention to those things and just, you know, run some milkweed, you know, give yourself indicators to understand how it moves across the landscape. Hopefully that answered your question, Dan. In a roundabout way, but I'm going to ask another one right off the bat here. <laughs> when it comes to deer hunting yeah. specifically, putting yourself, yep. we all want to put ourselves in the best spot. Is there a, are there trends that you see or are there specific places where here's what you should look for? You should look for this terrain feature with this edge and a morning hunt or whatever. And it seems to be consistent enough to where you would say, Hey man, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm looking for this when I'm scouting and I'm going to go hunt it. All right. So I would say High barometric pressure days allow you to cheat a lot of things. And you need to pay attention to everything you're managing across your, you know, your clothing. Um, I don't consume any food when I'm hunting. Um, you know, I'll, I'll drink a little bit of water. I'm, you know, you're trying to put the least amount of, of compounds across the landscape. And, and think about this too. Like, you'll remember, you know, your compounds as they get blown your, your compounds off your your clothing and your body as those get blown that's that's how you be you know you get wind detected you, you know they'll dissipate and you know it becomes questionable how long they're concentrated if you sit in a stand all day long there's going to be compounds all over the place that deer are going to be able to pick on up uh, eventually i mean you could wear you know, wear these carbon suits or whatever people are wearing nowadays to, to protect yourself it's, it's very rarely going to happen barometric pressure days are kind of funny a lot of times um, 
I'll pick those days to hunt because you can almost cheat the wind. A lot of times because you know your body's heating up and it's pulling basically up in the air your your compounds. The deer are less, you know, it's less impactful. They're not detecting those those particular situations. Now flip it around and have a high moisture day. High moisture days are, are absolutely the worst. I mean, the deer's olfactory system works the best. Your molecules attach to those moisture compounds and they're all over the place. And they usually sink because of the weight. And uh, usually those are, 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 are low barometric pressure days. The deer will take full advantage of those situations. And I would stay away from those days and stay more inclined to hunt barometric pressure days. And then even in the barometric pressure days, I won't always hunt high on a hillside. Um, I may hunt low in some cases and I'll stay away from openings. So stay away from clear cut openings, hunt the edge, hunt in more stabilized timber settings like I, I discussed earlier. And, um, uh, you know, if you're designing a hunter property, you can pinch deer down in those conditions and you could, you know, hinge cut some trees and make them come around to bend and, and make them more susceptible. The other thing, and, and I know you've talked about this on your podcast, is focusing on these, you know, deep uh, ravines and draws and gullies and, and basically areas deer can't frequent. Those become killer sites and, and basically, you know, they create this, you know, temporary or permanent access issue that, you know, deer can't get in those areas. So you have these dead zones. So having dead zones in concert with barometric pressure days um, and usually being a little bit higher normally depending on what side of the slope you are and if you're on west facing slopes in the mornings you know those could still be cooling you could have temperature drop north facing slopes are notorious difficult to hunt anybody hunts north facing slopes and kills big bucks i mean give me a call because i want to learn how to do it it's tough yeah. to do um, because they're always dropping they actually drop all day long um, I've, I've had days like that so hopefully that gives you you know some indication of what i would do in a landscape setting so, and you mentioned this, and I would agree that on a high barometric pressure day, um, everything that we talk about uh, as far as locating deer and how they move through the terrain, um, I would argue that a, a low or a, uh, a high pressure day, you, you could probably see more deer movement movement in certain areas put find find us an area that the your thermals are going to rise and and you have a predominant wind direction and it's just going to be perfect for you but do you think that on the opposite end of the spectrum there are ways to on a rainy uh, low pre low um, low pressure day where you could also use that same strategy but just flip everything to make the the success go up on low pressure days so i mean i killed the buck this year on the low pressure day rainy stormy day yeah. um i used two things factors going in there the rain was a benefit um but the intensity of rain is meaningful so this 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 will add to your craziness and your listeners will think i'm nuts but again and this is part of the process so i waited to the um highest intensity of rain uh, to make my decision to go in that stand. Usually I would go in around, in this case, probably about 345. I went in at three o'clock because uh, it was the highest uh, rain uh, precipitation was coming down at the most intensity, right? So that gave me kind of a clean entrance in there. That, that was my, that was my, 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 uh, my objective. The thing there is when you start to get that misty rain, and this is what really is concerning, misty rain in concert with light wind so even think fog it can be it, it basically you know i was worried about i was talking about earlier i'm worried about my compounds coming off of my body and kind of concentrating an area it even concentrates more 
So if you don't have a good wind condition in that area or a good thermal drop, a change in temperature, those become really problematic. It just it's almost it's almost too difficult to get in there and be successful. The reason I was successful in that hunt is I had a box blind. And I years ago would never ever think stooping to hunt out of a box blind. But I had a box blind that put me in in a position and, and when I got into my blind, this is the insanity behind it. I was I was like super nervous to kill this deer, right? I was high anticipation. This is right off the bat. It's do or die. I went after him at the worst the worst day you could go after a deer, but I knew he'd move in these conditions and I knew where he was going to be. And, you know, I, I slowed my breathing. I meditated in the tree stand in the box blind. I just, I, I, I didn't eat anything. I didn't hardly move. I just kind of just chilled. And, you know, I tried to not to expel as much, you know, um, you know, uh, air from my breath. I mean, there are all those things that, you know, went into it, whether it helped me or not, I, I don't know, but it's certainly, the deer had all the advantage and when they have all the advantage in those situations, they're going to move way more frequently than people give them credit for. So people pay very little attention to hunting on days that are very difficult. And mind you, I was bow hunting too, which adds another factor in the track, you know, tra tracking of this year after you shoot them, you're putting yourself in a huge disadvantage and you've got to consider that when you're going after deer. So it was low odds, low probability, but high probability of movement. So sometimes they're in the best condition. I would say use terrain to your advantage on those days. That's probably the most important. And the timing is critical. And when you have these like rainy days, you can sneak in a little bit quieter. You can be a little bit more, more covert and get as close as you can to that deer. Um, you know, so that's, that's kind of my recommendation. So yeah, it could yeah. be to your benefit, those conditions. I'll tell you this, man, I am a huge fan of hunting the tail end of like a huge rain system that maybe it's been dreary and rainy and sprinkles for like 48 hours, let's say, you know, 18 hours quick. I don't, I don't think the quickness of like a, a quick rainstorm that comes through, like a big front pushes through and it's, it's like a, a four hour event comes through. But when you have these periods of time where, it just soaks everything and deer from, from my experience is they just sit tight and they, they, they know for some reason they know when it's going to start and when it's going to end. So maybe right before the event, they'll go out and they'll feed heavy knowing that they're going to sit it out for the next, you know, 18 plus hours. So they might, whether they miss something or like miss a meal or, or they maybe just don't eat as much or they stay close to the bedding area, whatever. But then there's something happens, and if you pair this with the pre-rut time frame, and I did just the same in 2016, I did this. In 2018, I did this. In, what was the other one? There was another one where it rained all day, you know, like the whole the whole previous day, and it the, yeah. then the storm left, and I was walking to the tree stand while it was raining where I was setting up in the rain and then the sprinkle stopped and then the big dog showed up, right? So they're like, Hey, I'm, it's time to stretch my leg. It's time to go lay some sign. And, uh, for me, they, they were all by themselves in those, in those, uh, events that I just mentioned. I didn't have to call. I was just in the right spot 
near a place where they, you know, the, the, ter- a really good terrain feature and, uh, or, and most of the times it, I could even go a step further and say it was a staging area right before a, a big ag field or a big food source. And so I love hunting those type of events and cause typically you're getting a unique wind in a scenario like that, a wind that doesn't happen consistently as opposed to, let's just say, a straight west wind or a southwest or a northwest wind, um, you'll get maybe a little east to it. But it was right when that east wind changed to a south, a straight south, southwest, when this deer popped up uh, in 2018, right as the last sprinkle came down, and I was I was in the right spot for that. So I, I'm a huge fan of hunting the tail end of like major rainstorms. Yeah. It's a game of inches, Dan. And that's, that's the difference between people that are able to capitalize and not, and it's just, it's a time and place. It's, I've always said it's a time and place thing. And it's hard to kind of diagnose these things. Like my example, that deer this year, there was a window when he came out and it stopped raining for about 15 minutes. And then I shot him and then it it just poured. And, you know, I was paying attention to the weather systems and how erratic they were or how consistent they were that all played into my, my decision-making. And I waited for that storm to go after that deer. I mean, it, it happened to me right off the bat with the season and I knew my neighbors knew about the deer. I just knew I had to kill them, you know, quickly. And, you know, I, I needed, I had clients coming up. I was doing clients in two weeks after that. So I'm like, I got to kill this deer. I'm done. My wife was happy, right? She, <laughs> she wants to be done as soon as possible. And she's like, well, what day are you going to kill the deer? You know, I'm pretty predictive. I, I told them my buddies, I said, Thor's going to die Sunday. The name of that deer was Thor. Thor's going to die Sunday. You know, would you guys want to come over Monday? You know, you, you know, can you get off of work to come over? And, um, you know, I pre-planned everything. I got home. I told my in-laws, I'm killing them tonight. Like, get the kids down. Like, you know, and people may laugh at that, but it's complete. It's completely true. I've done this, you know, for a long time. And, you know, when you start to collect data on deer and know how they move across the landscape and really kind of diagnose these these small indices like it's a lot of things that lead up to success you know i I just had i did my podcast last night and i was talking about you know how all these little incremental things lead to success it's all these things that you do across the landscape it's not adding like red or dogwood like that's not the savior plant like there's so many different things that i do to get me to the end game and you know i i'm i'm not you know saying like i'm a cadillac hunter because i hunted out of box blind i kill this deer etc etc but it's a field setting you know, either I'm sitting in the ground in, you know, a, a brush pile or I'm sitting in a box blind and I'm going to pick a box blind. And I think, you know, just timing things and everything that goes into it, it, it's, it's really difficult. I have one deer to go after and about, you know, I hunt maybe two or 3000 acres in my area. I've got access to a lot of different land. There was one shooter buck, one 150 class deer in 5,000 acres that I can hunt one, one, and I'm running ton, one. And that was the oldest deer, a five and a half year old deer. And he was happened to be on my property, property, ironically. So, you know, I want to just empower people to say, you can do it. You can change your property and find success. I mean, I've done it. I mean, some of the tactics that I'm doing, you know, they are not mainstream. We talked about thermoregulating and that's important thing of how the deer move and, you know, consume energy or exert energy. Those are really important to kind of start to diagnose the reasons why they, they do what they do. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, change, you talk about changing the, changing the habitat, but if you don't, the other underlying conversation that you had here is putting in the time to understand the properties that you do hunt if you can't make alterations to them, 
right? And yeah. and I'm that's where I'm at in my like I ha- I have to know what wind is doing on certain ridges, what it's doing down in the bottom. Um, I have to absorb that information because I can't take a chainsaw to the farms that I hunt or the public land that I hunt. So I have to I have to understand the property the like almost reverse engineer it from the standpoint that you're talking about totally totally and you're less offensive you're dealing with the environment as it stands and you have to be reactionary and that those are harder things to do but you're spending more time in the off season evaluating things and then likely hunting more frequently i am i'm going in and i'm hunting you know i hunted five times last year and you know i shot a buck and a bunch of does and you know, every time I went and I killed and I, I, I'm so like overly strategic, it comes to the point where like my wife said, is this fun anymore for you? And I said, <laughs> it is. I mean, because there's, it's so difficult. Like it, that whole hunt that I explained earlier could have went totally large. I shot that deer quartering too, because he was, I mean, I think it's just, it's an incredible thing for me to just experience and, and relate to people. And I want like my buddies to find success. I've had buddies come over this past weekend and I was showing them how to put in bedding areas because I want them to do more work on their property. And, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, it's nice to empower people to be successful because you hunting by permission and I have tons of properties I hunt by permission. I'm just susceptible to whatever goes on there. And other guys, I mean, I hunt against guys, so it's a competition thing and they all know, and they're, they're paying attention to when I'm up there and, you know, they're, they're, they're beating in on my, my strategy and, you know, and and that's, that's what you have to contend with. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a competition. So, yep, for sure. Well, John, man, I really appreciate you taking time to uh, hop on the podcast today and chat real quick though. Um, Everybody needs to go take a listen to John talk on the Whitetail Landscapes uh, podcast here on the on the network. But also, John, if people have any questions or they want to reach out to you about, you know, maybe habitat work on their properties, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, you can go to my website, uh, whitetaillandscapes.com. I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Whitetail Landscapes. Uh, you can call me. You can email me at john at whitetaillandscapes. You know, get a hold of me if you have questions. I will let everyone know. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of demand for me. I'm I'm booking into the summer of 23 now, so I'm I'm a year out. I'm completely booked. Um, but if you're interested in having me coming out to your property, plan ahead. I'll give you a ton of homework and uh, get you way ahead of the game. Um, you know, I, I'm 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 really focused. I, I've done some work in the Midwest, and obviously, I'm a New England guy, Northeast guy. Um, but I travel all over the place helping people. I typically don't do Southern states. Uh, but on our podcast, we have other guys that are doing that work in southern states. So you can get a hold of me, and I'll contact you uh, to them, and they can do some work for you. But you know, I'm I'm happy to help anybody, and uh, you know, very sophisticated, involved. Uh, this is a little bit different from a lot of uh, people to do consulting. And I am a really hands-on guy. I give you rules of thumb. Uh, I do work on properties from time to time, and and it helps people improve. Like you know, sometimes I'll go out for a consult that'll be a two or three day job. And they want me to stay and cut with them and just show them the basics to get them to the point of success. And, and uh, I do that from time to time with certain clients. So I think, you know, there's a lot that you can learn and just, you know, again, feel empowered to do this. And, and, and like Dan said, like scout and pay attention and, you know, diet, you know, dial everything in so you can be successful this honey season. Now's the time to do that. Now's the time to start scouting and planning ahead. Amen. Well, sir, uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for all the information today, and uh, we'll talk to you later. 
All right, Dan. See you, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but after listening to an episode like this and, and talking with John, my mind is just a little bit blown. And so what I'm going to do is actually I'm going to go set a tra- couple trail cameras out this weekend while I'm I'm going to do a little turkey scouting because I think I'm going to pull my daughter out of school again and uh, get in there and start to uh, um, put some trail cameras up, scout some turkeys. And at the same time, I'm going to try to figure out some of these thermoregulating uh, areas uh, that are going to be the best. They're going to be the coolest. And so when you can find things like that, then it just helps you. Like I mentioned earlier, it, it just helps you put the pieces of the puzzle together. And that's really what hunting is putting as many pieces of the puzzle together as possible to put yourself within shooting distance of whatever you're trying, whatever your goal is, whether that's a big buck or, or just fill in the freezer. So there's that. Thank you. Thanks to John for uh, hopping on and chatting with us today. Huge shout out. Like I, I mention this every episode, but I truly, honestly, like if it wasn't for you guys listening every single week, this wouldn't have been a, this, my life wouldn't be happening right now. So I owe a lot to you guys. Thank you very much. Hopefully you guys enjoy this free content. And uh, man, if you are if you're down, if you're not feeling well, get outside, man. That shit will save you. And uh, breathe some fresh air. Go for a walk. Go for a hike. Take your kids outside. If you are, um, and I, I'm, I'm getting to this point now where my daughter and my son, they really want to watch TV and YouTube a lot. And I feel like there is an opportunity. It's, it's a bad opportunity for, for this to be a wedge and drive us apart. And I think that every time that we're outside, it becomes an opportunity to drive us closer together. So as the the spring and the summer come, we're going to be spending a lot of time outside and just like hanging out. And uh, I think that's going to make our bond, my bond as a husband and father stronger. And that's the goal, right? So I know that's just a little outside of the box there, but I just wanted to say it because that's what I was thinking. So dude, good vibes out. I hope you guys were receiving all the good vibes that I put out, man, because I put out a lot of them. Uh, Good vibes out, good vibes in, and we'll talk to you next time.